This week on Writers Inc. You've you've got to you've got to make really hard decisions about what to keep in and and what to leave on the cutting room floor to make it as accessible for the audience as possible. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's In. Welcome back, Zach. How is the earache? It was all right. So my, it, there's actually, uh, a, a, my, my daughter had a really, really bad cold last week. Uh, and then my wife got it. <laughs> so uh, she's, my wife actually has it way worse. So it's not COVID. It's not even the flu. She actually went to the doctor. She tested negative for COVID three times. Uh, tested negative for the flu. It's just like, but it sounded like COVID. I mean, my, it's been really bad. But uh, you, I don't, you guys can probably see, but I have like, a blanket and a pillow and stuff. I've been sleeping in my office for like several days now. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's going, I'm back. So yeah, everything's good. My daughter's good. My wife will, she will live. So everything's going to be good. Everything kind of feels like COVID these days. Like I, if I hear somebody cough, you know, like it's, 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 it's gotta be COVID, right? People, I mean, it, people right pretend you. that there's no other illnesses. Like yeah. you, you can actually get other sicknesses. It's kind of funny, but well, I, I was telling Jay last week when, when you were out, you know, like my, my daughter, like every time she goes to the gym or she goes to the pediatrician, like she comes home with something. Um, and, and like kids are super resilient. Like she'll get through the, the sniffles or whatever in like a day or two. But like when I catch it from her and we always do because you know, it's impossible not to, you know, like I'm stuck with that for like two or three weeks, just trying to shake it. Um, you know, so that, that, that sucks. Um, but we're, we're, we're kind of hoping, you know, our daughter kind of gets all this stuff out of her system before she hits kindergarten. Cause my wife actually, she got held back a year because like she stayed home until, you know, she was five until she started kindergarten. And then she went in and like, she was so sick and missed so much time that, um, you know, like they actually held her back. And like, I don't know how bad, I mean, you got to miss a lot of time to, to get held back in kindergarten. <laughs> I don't know the specifics there, but, but yeah. My, my wife actually pulled something genius out of her, her butt yesterday. My, we caught our daughter underneath the Christmas tree opening a, one of the presents. And, and and she got it open, and it was like a pair of, like, you know, stretch pants or, or something like that. And my daughter was all disappointed. And my wife was like, you know, anytime you open a present before Christmas, it, it, Christmas, it turns into clothes. <laughs> and like i have never seen a, a, a four-year-old drop a box as fast as, as she did and like she hasn't gone anywhere near that tree ever since so for parents out there that that, that works <laughs> that's funny she thought fast on her feet for that one yeah, yeah i don't know where it came from but that might have been the most genius thing i've ever heard yeah we've had a couple instances like we're doing that we're doing that elf on the shelf stupid thing and like we, we don't have the real one. We just got like some little elf, but it's so funny because my daughter's seven and she still thinks that damn thing moves on its own every night. But there's <laughs> been like a couple nights where we forgot to move it, but they've been on nights where like crazy, like I didn't move it the night uh, we had all those crazy tornadoes came through my area. I forgot. I just didn't think about moving it that night. And then the next morning she noticed and I was like, oh yeah, well, I think she just was scared to move because of the storms you know type of thing so but uh she's it's funny like she still she thinks that maybe she's just having fun with it and she knows it doesn't really do it but kids are it's it's still fun so she, she's gonna start moving it on you and like you and your wife are gonna be looking at each other going what the hell is this because you, you, you never know <laughs> those, those things creep me out we, i don't want one in the house i'd rather have a ouija board sitting on my kitchen table than have a, yeah i think i would too at this point to be honest with you yeah <laughs> <laughs> Um, publishing stuff. We should probably talk about that. So I, I've been trying out Atticus. I know, I think Jay said you were too. Yep. Um, I, I, I had to pull back and go to, to Scrivener this week. Um, I was just, I run, was running into a snag where, you know, I've got so many different people that are kind of working on each book that I work on. Um, you know, like this, this is another co-authored project. I've got an editor that jumps in there and getting the project out of Atticus and getting it into the right format for all these different people. Like it, it got to the point where it took me almost an hour just to get it, you know, set. Um, and oh, just, you were it, writing in it? 
Yeah, yeah, because I, I really oh. wanted like a one size fits all solution for all this stuff. And, you know, I, I liked some of the things that, you know, are, are coming. I mean, they're just not there yet, like the ability for an editor to jump in there and, and you know, and make their changes and stuff like that. But it's just it's not there. Um, but the one thing that really got me and I didn't realize this, but like, it, you know, it, it uh, I'm not sure what font it's using, but it's not Times New Roman. Um, and it's not spaced, you know, as, as a normal book would be. It's not like double spaced. It just it doesn't look correct to me um and like i think something in my brain is like on a subconscious level like i need to see the text that i'm writing in the format that it's going to be in the book um for whatever reason the paragraphs everything just flows a lot better um when when i see it that way when i know what it's going to look like when it's finished and like my word count doubled just going back to scrivener and i couldn't figure out <laughs> why and i i really think it had something to do with that like even the tone of the writing was slightly different in times new roman versus the font that they're using in atticus um, so I just thought, you know, from a psychological standpoint, either I'm really screwed up or there's something to that. Um, but I'm, I'm just I'm guessing after all these years of just reading books that are all in a particular font, like my brain is looking for that when I when I'm telling a story. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think like it's not, I haven't used Atticus, but I know I think it, like from what Jay was even surprised saying you're writing it. Like, I think you're just a little early on that. And yeah, because I think it launched as a vellum replacement, which is. Like I could, you could write in vellum, but it would be horrible because that's not what it's for. I mean, it's it's for formatting. So I just like like you were saying, they just haven't gotten to the point where like he he Dave saw the need. For, I mean, he obviously I think in the long term sees sees the need for this all in one tool, but I think initially he saw the need for like PC users to be able to do something like vellum, <laughs> and yeah. because they were getting left behind because you know vellum is 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 not is going to be Mac only I would assume and probably not change so. Uh, yeah, you're probably just a little early on using it as a writing tool. Yeah, I'm guessing in about a year. You know, like it was a lot of little things too. You know, like um, I, I just have certain habits. So like when I go back um, to like I read over stuff that I wrote the previous day and I kind of clean it up and edit it and things like that. And in Scrivener, I just change the little icon that's next to that particular chapter so I know what I did. Um, or I, I'll run a chapter through uh, Grammarly just to, you know, catch punctuation errors and stuff like that. And I change the flag for that. So like those kind of little things, you know, I'm just used to seeing them and I just I didn't have that in and it was okay when I was only five chapters in, but when I started getting like 20 or 30 chapters in, you know, I was just having a really hard time tracking what I had done and what I hadn't done and things like that. But I, I mean, it's heading in the right direction. Don't get me wrong. It's a great piece of software and I'm sure it's going to get there. You know, it might be interesting at some point if uh, the three of us just screenshot a, um, sort of a typical Scrivener window when we're working in it, because uh, I'm, I'm kind of the same way. Like I'm holding off on Atticus right now as a writing tool because I know it's going to develop. Um, but I, I have a hard time writing in anything but Scrivener because of all those little things. So like, I, I like having the project notes window. I like having the index card in the top right. I love being able to change the flags or the icon or you know, for individual files. And it just might be interesting if we all, if the three of us kind of just shared like what our setup is within Scrivener because uh, I think a lot of people do that. And even though the, the, the UI, like the design on Scrivener is kind of dated, like it's not great. But uh, all those little features added up makes it a really great writing tool. Yeah, I mean, honestly, one of the things that I do is anytime I reference like a real place or anything like that, I always find it on Google and I drop a link in that note card. Um, and that's information that I can share with my editor later because when you turn in a book with a traditional publisher, they, they go through all that and you have to get permissions from any place where you're using that that's real. Um, or if, you know, if I'm describing a, a building, you know, and, and, you know, I'm using an actual real interior, it's nice to be able to just click on a link and, and see images of that actual interior. Um, so, you know, little things like that, they, they definitely spoil you and, you know, you miss them when they're gone. You don't realize it until you, you try without it. Feels like, uh, feels like literature and latte is missing a big opportunity to, uh, like if they just need to add a formatting tool <laughs> that's similar to all these other things, cause they've got the rest figured out. Yeah. The formatting on Scrivener is not it's easy. terrible. Yeah. It's not easy. Yeah. 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 Well, I was just gonna say I'm doing I'm going through that side of it now so I've mm. got the book back in Scrivener you know I had to do a cut and paste every single chapter got it back in Scrivener but now I'm going through that the insane number of menus you have to, to to export a file as a word document and get it in the right format yeah. um, and I'm sure there's a way to save that as some kind of template once you get it right but I've never been able to figure it out so I've got like a little simple note document that says go to this screen take off this go to this screen and take off that and I've got to do that for each book you know when it, when I first start off the project and then it, it remembers after that but yeah de definitely a lot of hoops to jump through well let's uh let's go around let's get a quick project update uh zach what are you working on these days yeah so uh last week with my daughter being sick kind of through my production loop i was hoping to have uh my dead past which is the fifth book of my dead south series like done and ready to 
upload the file manuscript, but uh, that has not happened. So, but I that's what I've been working on this week, and I think I'm actually going to be done by tomorrow. Uh, and I have to have it upload. I have a pre order, so I have to have it upload by like the 27th. But I'm going out of town, so I've got to I got to get it done. But I, I'm I'm on my final read through right now and uh and and doing and then i'll be done and it's uh it's looking good and so and i've got so i've got that going on um i'm about to release the second audiobook in that series uh i had a book bub well, i guess a couple weeks ago on my empty body series so december is looking to be a pretty good month so i got i got I got a lot of different i got two things coming out and then had that book bub so things have been uh things have been going well so Nice, nice. What about you, JD? What are you work? What, what, what are you working on that you can talk about? <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, we we had a conversation before we started the recording. I had a, a phone call last night with um, uh, a Zoom call with some people out in Hollywood on one of our projects, and they just they completely blew me away. Um, but like anything Hollywood, I'm not allowed to talk about it. Like I'll probably get shot just for mentioning what I did. So I'm I'm gonna keep my mouth shut. Um, I, I'm just juggling a bunch of different things. So I've got that screenplay right now, the the four and a half hour you know masterpiece that I put together. Um, that that's you know with my film agent and with a couple other people that are basically going through it right now with the highlighter trying to figure out what we can take out in order to get it down to, to two hours and five minutes. Um, so I'm waiting for one of those to you know to pop up in my my inbox because the second that happens, you know like I've got a boatload of work to do. Um, so right now I'm kind of getting a little reprieve. I'm in that little quiet spot where, you know, I, I don't know where we're at with it, but I, you know, I'm, I'm just waiting for it to hear back. Um, my latest book is with, with Kristen, um, and my beta readers, everybody's kind of weighed in on the, you know, the parts they like, the parts they don't like, and I've got a pretty extensive process with beta readers. Um, so that one is back on my desk and I'm, I'm going through that right now, cleaning it all up and, and getting it ready for submission. Um, hopefully, you know, beginning of the year around January or so, uh, we'll be able to take that one out. Um, and honestly, I'm trying to figure out what I want to write next. Um, you know, I, I've gone through you know, a bunch of options with, with Kristen and you know, my film agent, just trying to figure out what we want to put out there. I'm getting a lot of, um, a lot of my publishers worldwide pushing for another 4MK book, um, which is something I, I wasn't necessarily thinking about doing, but you know, it's, it's, it's been a while and like those characters are still kind of out there and like I could see myself writing more of them. Um, it's just, it was one of those things that was just so dark and you know, like it took me a while to kind of clear out my head and get that, that stuff out of there. Um, but now I'm kind of jonesing for it a little bit. So, so I don't know. I, I might go back into that world next, um, or I might end up writing something totally different. So it's, it's all kind of up in the air. Nice. Nice. Cool. I got a couple things going on. Uh, I'm, my goal is to, is to completely write the Bigfoot versus zombie squirrels, uh, serial. Even though it's going to launch July 1st, I want to have it done and edited and, and ready to go July 1st, as opposed to Stephanie, who kind of writes it as she goes. Uh, I finished drafting August this week, so I have July and August done. Uh, I need to go through the, through the rest of the months of the year, so I feel like I'm a third of the way through. That's, uh, that felt like progress. And just by chance, I reconnected with an old friend of mine who happens to be uh, the co-founder of a uh, Solana blockchain NFT marketplace. Uh, so I'm having, I'm into some really interesting conversations with him about authors uh, using NFTs and what that could look like for readers and books. And it's a, it's a very preliminary conversation, but it's a really exciting one. And uh, this, this guy's been like studying crypto and the blockchain for five years. And I feel like it's the missing piece of the puzzle for me because I really don't know much. I'm, I'm only about a half a step ahead of your average person, uh, but this guy's been immersed in it, and he's been fundraising, and and he's and he's in Silicon Valley. He knows that, and I feel like I got someone who can kind of guide me through it. So uh, it was it was pretty pretty fun week. And then the, the last thing got going on is uh, <laughs> kind of like JD. Uh, JD and I have a sort of a nonfiction project that we're kind of stewing on in the background that we can't really talk about yet, but uh, that's on my plate for this week too. So hopefully there'll be more of that coming in the near future. All right, well, let's take care of some business. And <laughs> I feel uh, like yeah. I need to be more secretive. <laughs> <laughs> I need secret projects. Yeah, I was gonna say, Zach, can't you just make something up? Like I'm working on this thing, but I can't really talk about it. <laughs> Maybe I am. <laughs> Maybe right. I can't talk about it so much that I can't talk about it. Perfect. <laughs> well, let's talk about something we can talk about, which is Kobo Writing Life, our wonderful sponsors. Uh, if you are publishing a book wide and you do not want to be exclusive to one particular retailer, and we all know which one that is, you can publish your book on Kobo Writing Life. You get to take advantage of all of their monthly pro promotional opportunities. You can set prices. You get international distribution. 
What I think the best part about Kobo is the fact that you can email their support and you talk to a real person. So if you are interested, you can sign up for free at KoboWritingLife.com. We also want to give a nice warm shout out to new patron, Davey Allen. What's up, Davey? Really appreciate the support. If you would like to become a supporter of the Writers Inc. podcast and submit questions to our monthly Q&A episode, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash podcast. And now, J.D., it's time for the guest. Who do we got? Uh, Jason Porath. Why don't you go ahead and introduce this guy because you brought him in. Yeah, Jason. Uh, this is going to be fun. Uh, a, a bit selfish, I'll admit. Guns N' Roses, one of my favorite bands of all time. J.D., I know uh, one of yours. Zach, I know you're a fan too. Uh, Jason co-wrote a book about the history of Guns N' Roses, and he recently turned it into a podcast project. And uh, I, I reached out to him because I thought this is a great example of an author who is uh, sort of going beyond the written word. And he's, he's taking intellectual property, and he's doing some really creative stuff with it, including video. Um, so I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation, especially for authors who have rights to their IP and are looking to... Uh, uh, take advantage to, to, to use that as leverage, whether that's in licensing deals or foreign rights. Uh, but there's a lot of opportunity here. So uh, I think this is going to be a fun conversation with Jason. Let's take a listen. Okay, I'm dying to know, do you think Axel and Slash will ever get together and play as Guns N' Roses again? Is that a trick question? <laughs> oh, I, was, I was setting you up. I was hoping you were going to say not in this lifetime. <laughs> yeah, that's the time machine answer. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, it used to be. It used to be when hell freezes over. But I guess they they thought that was too much of a a common phrase, so they changed it to not in this lifetime. <laughs> in, in all seriousness, did you ever think that would happen? Well, you know. When we created Reckless Road, when we were doing Reckless Road, there there was no possibility that seemed um, available. Axel had regrouped Guns N' Roses into and kind of made it into his own image. Um, nobody was left, as you know, and um, I I personally did not have the inside track to that, um, but but Mark Cantor did, and uh, I know Mark was actively trying to bring them back together and tried to trying to find the pieces that could build a bridge back to a conversation and i think he he tried to do that in subtle ways and not so subtle ways <laughs> and some of them backfired against him um but ultimately there was a conversation that was brokered uh between the two and um i guess the rest is history as they say when you say backfired do you mean uh cause Mark some problems or maybe set the reunion back a bit? I think it did. I think, you know, Mark was sometimes active on GNR chat forums. Sometimes he would do an interview and, and he would put forth his opinion pretty assertively. Um, sometimes the reporter uh, or, or the commenter, whoever was kind of, you know, feeding back what Mark had said might, might exaggerate what Mark had said and that pissed people off. I think it made Mark look like he was more of an important figure in the coming together of the band than than you know what was reality. I just I I, I think the truth was stretched with what he was trying to do, and it backfired. Mm. And I, I don't think it was his fault. Well, th this might be a good time to to sort of introduce Mark to our listeners. Uh, can can you uh, describe who Mark Cantor is and your relationship to him? Of course. So. Mark Cantor grew up with Slash. They met in elementary school. They were friends off and on through middle school. Um, and at some point in time, uh, you know, Slash picked up a guitar and Mark picked up a camera. And they kind of found their calling um, in each of those activities. And when they got back together, Slash said, hey, you should come check out my new band, Titus Sloan. Um, if we were to go back a little bit further, Mark was already documenting Slash because, you know, he was superhuman at really anything he did. So <laughs> in that case, they were they were riding dirt bikes together. In fact, Slash tried to steal Mark's dirt bike, which is how they met. Um, so, you know, Mark saw that Slash was doing these insane tricks before his time, before he should have. He was very young and doing very advanced things. So Mark was always drawn to that um, aspect of Slash that he 
was so quickly proficient at anything he picked up. So he knew the guitar was, you know, slashing the guitar was going to be something pretty special. So when Slash uh, invited Mark to to his garage band, Titus Sloan, uh, you know, of course, Mark picked up a camera and started documenting. And, and that really kicked off this relationship uh, where Mark began to document everything Slash did, leading into the origin of Guns N' Roses. And then he documented the entire journey of Guns N' Roses on the Sunset Strip for the next two and a half years. So it's quite a remarkable story. It's quite a remarkable thing, what he did. It really is, especially given the time. Uh, I think a lot of us take for granted now that we all have cameras in our pockets and they don't need to be, pictures don't need to be developed. Uh, they're ubiquitous, right? But in the in the early, mid, late 80s, um, you know, that, that took some work. And I think to to have that insight or to have that, that gut reaction that like, wow, the slash guy is really onto something and to start documenting that with photography, it's really a gem, don't you think? It is, you know, and Mark was a rock and roll collector, kind of an obsessive one, even before that, you know, he was into anything Aerosmith. You know, he was the guy. So back in the eighties, and if you wanted to get tickets to a show and you wanted to get the best tickets, you had to go wait in line and they handed you a bracelet and then your bracelet, you know, the, the bracelet basically determined the order in which you lined up. And so he was the one that was out there at the, at the forum in LA uh, at five in the morning waiting for the bracelet. Um, he, he had a big collection of Aerosmith stuff. So documenting and collecting was something he, he already did. That was already something that was kind of part of his interest. Um, so it wasn't a stretch for him to go and do that for his friend, um, but he just loved the music that he started to hear. He loved the songwriting that was coming from Izzy. He loved um, the hype that was building around his friend and he just wanted to help. And so he didn't just document, you know, I refer to Mark as kind of the angel investor in the band. So if, <laughs> back at that time, if there was such a thing, you know, Mark was the angel investor and he fed them and he gave them money to fix their guitar strings and he schlepped them around in his car to different gigs. Whatever he could do to help these guys take it to the next level, he did. And uh, this is this is all well documented in your book, Reckless Road, Guns and Roses and the Making of Appetite for Destruction, which is one of my favorite uh, rock history pieces because it's, it's a special era for the band. It was a special era in rock and roll. Uh, can you tell us how that that book and your collaboration with Mark came about? Sure. You know, to, to make a long story short, I was part of a tech startup around books and flash players back in 2005, 2006. The product was called Enhanced Books. And the idea is that you had an image-based book, you know, a photography book, a cookbook, whatever it was. And you brought you brought it online and you peppered it with all these different audio and video extras. So we really take that for granted now that we have all the iOS devices and everything where kind of that interactivity is natural, but back then it wasn't. Um, and so we set out to develop a platform again for photography books that included audio and video extras. At the time, and I was responsible for generating all those audio and video extras for the company at that time. There was a book called America's Greatest Delis. This woman traveled all 50 states and, you know, wrote about the top delis. And of course, Cantor's was, was one of them. So we decided to do the launch party for her book at Cantor's, which we did, photographed, created all the, the video assets. And when it came time to monetize those assets, I called Cantor's to see if they wanted to advertise on the pages of this book, because that was the business model. And I got Mark on the phone and Mark said, well, we don't have an online business. We, we advertise on bus stops and billboards, right? We don't, you know, we don't sell anything online. Why would we do this? But he said, what is this enhanced book platform? And so I told him about it and he's like, wow, he's like, I think I got a story that would be great for that. And in my head, I'm thinking, well, we've already got a deli book and, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I just, I wasn't that interested in, you know, a cookbook. So you know, I was on the fence. I was like, all right, Mark, you know, what do you got? You know, what's your story? 
And then the next four words out of his mouth basically changed everything. He said, I grew up with Slash. And and he went on to tell me about this, this archive that's been sitting in his basement for 20-something years at that time. Nobody had seen it. He had built these scrapbooks from his content, um, but he hadn't done anything with it. And I flew out to meet him. Uh, we connected. I had written other books, so I'd, I brought my work, and we built some trust together. And I told him my vision for the project, and and you know he really wanted the enhanced book experience. Um, and we decided to shake hands and and get going on this project. So that was the origin of how Mark and I met. So if that release party had been at Frank's Deli, that nothing nothing would have came with. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Musso and Frank's nothing would have happened. This this project would not. He would have he would have found somebody to bring this project to light. I I like to think that I brought a level of integrity to the story um, that made it special for fans, and that that was really the goal. So I I have to ask because this is a this is one of those moments I've I've heard this a number of times. An opportunity presents itself. And it's completely outside of what your expectations are for what's happening. You're, you're thinking a cookbook or a, a restaurant book, and this guy pitches you a, a Guns N' Roses origin story. How do you, internally, were you just jumping at that? Like, absolutely, I'm, I'm, I'll be right there. Did you, did you wrestle with it? Like, did you ever think, like, well, what's the point? This isn't really tied into my business model. Like, what was going through your mind at that time? Yeah, I mean, at that time, I was you know, already had been a creator, um, whether that was writing, um, you know, early, early in my career, I was involved in theater and documentary filmmaking. So storytelling was already part of my path, right? And so when an opportunity like this came up um, with, a, with a collection of content as historical as Mark's, it was a, I'll be on the plane tomorrow kind of, kind of reaction. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's figure that let's, let's shake hands and then we'll figure out how to make it happen. <laughs> kind of a thing. Yeah. And, and how far away was, was Mark's vision for this book from what you had already done? Like, were you writing fiction? Were you writing articles? What, were, what kind of writing were you doing prior to that? Yeah. My, my writing uh, was always nonfiction storytelling. So this was right up my alley. Um, you know, uh, I, I always brought, kind of a, a strong hero's journey narrative to anything that I did and applied that to nonfiction. So um, I really, so like Mark's vision was very much like a scrapbook. Like this is the chronology. This is what was heard. This is what was said. And these are the first 50 gigs. That, that was kind of how he constructed it. I wanted to look at what was the hero's journey here? Like what were the dynamics that had this band come together in the way that they did. What was their journey like on the Sunset Strip? Uh, right, you know, climbing up the food chain. What was it like to write Appetite? Um, how did the, you know, how did the dynamics of these five guys lead to that interpersonal struggle that resulted in that music? Um, who else had a genetic kind of thumbprint on this music? Who else was involved around the band? What was the orbit? So there, there's a lot to explore there if you can get beyond just the chronology um, and what was said on stage. There's actually a fascinating story that reveals a very human story and and captures lightning in a bottle from the 1980s. Yeah, well, I pulled in one, Hollywood. Yeah, one of my favorite quotes from the book uh, is from Stephen Adler, who said. All five of us went to the Sunset Grill and split a cheeseburger, cut into five pieces. And I thought, wow, if that doesn't sum up sort of the, sorry, literally hungry nature of these guys, like they they were willing to do anything to make it. They were. And what's even more interesting is how they actually all got together. I think a lot of people don't think about, you know, how these five guys came together that maybe they met, they just got together and suddenly this great music came out of them, but um, they really, were, all of them in one way or another were runaways. Um, they were living on the streets. Um, they had left their homes. Um, a lot of them came from fractured homes. Um, so there's, I think a, a common theme throughout these five individuals is that they had really left their family. Their family wasn't there for them. Um, 
or and they were in search of another kind of family. And um, and Guns N' Roses became that family for them. And there's a moment in time where that crystallized, where the band became a band. These five members became a single unit. Um, you know, it's just it's a it's a moment in the story that that's very special. Yeah, and and you um, you were speaking about the hero's journey and and sort of talking about the arc of these uh, these guys, these characters in, in this story. How, as a writer, how did you go from this just massive archive that Mark had? How did you start constructing it? Were you, did you create an outline? Did you just start writing? Were you interviewing? Sort of, what's sort of the logistics of that look like? Yeah, it's, it's a great question because you have to, what, whatever story I wanted to superimpose over Mark's collection, we had to start with what was there. What are the basics? What do we have? What do, you have, what do we have to work with? And what, what can't we, you know, it's almost like, Here's what we have. Now let's strip away everything to its essence and then start to rebuild from there. And the one thing you could not strip away was the chronology. You know, it was the progression. It was the gig by gig chronology that really held everything together. That might sound obvious, um, but when you're creating a book, as you know, or a documentary film, you've you've got to you've got to make really hard decisions about what to keep in and, and what to leave on the cutting room floor to make it as accessible for the audience as possible. Sometimes that means you take shortcuts. Sometimes that means you jump in time to reveal the truth. Um, and I felt like we couldn't do that in this case. We had to stay true to the gig, gig by gig chronology. So that was really the foundational building block. Um, and then it was really up to me. So again, Mark had all the content, but he didn't have any of these stories. He didn't have the story. He just, he had the, the, and he was the story, but I couldn't rely on a singular voice to tell this story. Right. So it was, it was my job really to, to kind of figure out who the best voices were that were going to bring Mark's archive to life, you know, and that was like, you know, Vicki Hamilton, um, who used to manage the band or some of the, you know, strippers who let them crash on their couches uh, of course, Tom Zutat, you know, who who discovered them. Um, but you also have all of the people who were in all the bands prior to the Appetite lineup of Guns N' Roses and what contribution kind of they made to it. Um, so there's all these characters that come in and out of these stories. It's not like these guys did it on their own. Um, there was a, a, a cast of characters behind them helping them to, to navigate through all this. So we interviewed about 30 people for the book. And then, so the book was really constructed like a talking stick narrative that would take, that would, you know, take one person's recollection of a moment and kind of wet it together or thread it together uh, with, with somebody else's. And for Reckless Road, we were able to interview Slash, Duff and Steven, um, but we were not able to interview Axel and Izzy. Interesting. Interesting the way that split went. <laughs> yeah. And, and actually, as we revisit the story, those splits are very interesting. Um, you know, one of the things that we're revealing as we go back and we can, we can talk about the podcast as well um, is that there were teams, you know, Slash and Steven uh, were a team. Izzy, Izzy and Axel were a team, you know, Tracy Guns and Rob Gardner were a team. You know, there are all these teams. It was very, it's interesting. I, didn't, I never thought about it that way until recently, hmm. but yeah, they were paired off. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I think it was earlier this year, I'm scanning blabbermouth for the hard rock and heavy metal news as I like to do. And I see that there's this post that says, uh, there's this new project coming called the first 50 gigs. It's about the, the, the first 50 gigs of guns and roses and the appetite for destruction there. And I'm like, I'm totally in, <laughs> and it turns out it's uh it's the new project you you and uh, Mark are doing. So, uh, tell us about the first fifty gigs and 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 sort of how how you shifted from from writer to podcaster. Sure. Well, you know, once a project is done, it's done, right? And Reckless Road was done when we released Reckless Road there was a code if you if you open the the, the first kind of um, flap of the cover um, you'll see that there's an invitation to log into this thing called enhanced books which i described before 
So we had actually built this great multimedia experience with Reckless Road um, on the Enhanced Book platform. However, the the guys that were running the platform, they ran out of money and the whole thing shut down. So that interactive experience that we had all kind of dreamed about, um, you know, went dark after probably six months. That was really unfortunate because Mark had all this great content. He had all the videos, he, he had, you know, all these recordings, there was all this cutting room stuff. Um, and back in 2006, it wasn't a great experience anyways. I mean, we were working with Flash players, right? So, so it just wasn't a great experience for the end user. I would say since that time, you know, we, we toyed with how to really bring the story, you know, bring it back to life. And we just, we, we couldn't do it. Well, in 2011, um, when, when the iPhone app environment kind of came to life, um, I decided that I did want to get Reckless Road back into that interactive experience. And we built an app. I don't know if you you saw that, but there, I think yeah. it's still there in the <laughs> app store. Uh, there is an interactive version of the story for for iPhone and iPad. Um, and it does have a lot of the, you know, the recordings. And we produced some kind of mini documentary featurettes uh, to accompany the book. So so it was always this push to, to get it to be this interactive story because of the content that Mark brought to the table. Um, and so, I, you know, this, this is a COVID project. Um, you know, when, when COVID came and everything shut down, uh, we had a lot of times and I think I called Mark and I was like, now, now's the time. And I had been kind of studying the podcast environment, kind of seeing what was happening and this whole creator economy that was developing. And I'm always for pushing the envelope with storytelling and wanted to give this another shot. Um, and, you know, what I found is there's a lot more fans. There's a lot more younger fans. There, there are new generations of Guns N' Roses fans that really have no idea about this history. Um, we, we published Reckless Road independently, so we didn't have a big marketing machine behind us. Not, not a ton of people really know about the book. Um, and so this was another opportunity to distribute this amazing content at, at global scale um, through digital medium. And that was a very attractive um, kind of combination to to approach again with this material. Well, you had a lot of options as far as distribution goes. Uh, can you talk about why you chose Patreon? Sure. You know, Patreon was not my first choice. In fact, it was my last choice originally. Um, but I, but I, you know, had some advisors, and they they sold me on launching on Patreon. You know, uh, Patreon was already built. You know, we didn't need a ton of resources to build our own distribution channel on a new website, you know, and get people to the island of first50gigs.com for this new experience is, is quite a challenge and very expensive to get people there. So Patreon had a lot going for it. Um, it was already built and um, it allowed us to post videos and the audios and galleries and all kinds of different ways of experimenting with posts. Um, we could have done this YouTube. I, I didn't want, so here's what I didn't want to do. I did not want to create a YouTube series that was based on clicks and advertisements. Maybe down the road, we'll get to that point, but I didn't want to be a clickbait type of a program. I didn't want to have to get people with clickbait. I wanted to produce this with as much integrity as we did Reckless Road and have it be a very special and exclusive experience for, for fans. And I think that's what Patreon allowed us to do. Yeah, that is, uh, it sounds like you're very thoughtful about that decision because I think, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of options and, and sort of having patrons supported also gives you proof of concept or validation on the idea. Absolutely. And, you know, I will say that the exclusivity of it is hurting us a bit. In that we're not we're not getting the word out enough. It's not accessible. We've actually put the push the pause button on the project in November. We paused our our release schedule on Patreon, and we're working to syndicate you know the the podcast without the bonus material. You know on RSS feeds, we're getting some preview content on YouTube. So we're we're kind of back to building the foundational elements of how to get an audience awareness up and engagement. 
Do you have any insights on that? Because I know a lot of our listeners are, are getting their pencil ready and like, tell us how to yeah, do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, so in, in a way, I would say our Patreon launch was really our soft launch and we're, we're getting ready to do a relaunch. So I think the first easiest way for people to get access to this story will be on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any of the other podcast players that people use. Um, I would say in about two weeks, we're going to have some great um, preview material of all the episodes, probably about eight to 10 minutes from each episode. You know, we say podcast, but this is really a video series. So I don't know. Have you seen the videos? I've only been listening to the podcast. So that's an interesting observation. Yeah. So this is a rigid as a, as a, as a visual experience. And um, it's great that we can publish it as audio only. And we know people like to multitask when they're listening to podcasts or driving or they're doing whatever. Um, but this is an incredibly rich visual experience. And we actually went to great lengths to make it a very exciting documentary type of feel. So when people click into the, the video um, podcast um, part of this project, they're going to see all of Mark's content come to life and be brought to life by the guests that we brought on. Well, now I feel guilty for not watching the videos. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of, one of the, one of the episodes we did, which I think you've heard, was the the, the history of the Sunset Strip. Yes. Did you listen to that one? It, it was like a two-parter, right? You had like the. It was, yeah. It was yeah. it was a two-parter. Um, luckily, we were introduced to a Hollywood archivist, and you know, there's probably a hundred plus pictures in each episode. Um, so those are those are worth looking at because if you want to see what the Sunset Sunset Strip looked like in 1910, you know, it's it's right there. I mean. It's all orange groves and farmland. Yeah. It's quite, quite extraordinary. Yeah, I'm, def I'm definitely going to go back and check that out. That, that sounds pretty cool. Uh, so I, I kind of have uh, maybe a fun question for you. We can kind of wrap up with this one. Uh, you alluded uh, a moment ago that you kind of hit pause and that the, the Patreon is sort of a soft launch. So what's coming next for this project? And it does this project, is this a springboard to something after it? It is, you know, it's a it's a process of discovery for us. You know, we have a very clear idea about what the content should be. So it, in terms of it, you know, again, we've got a very clear idea of what we want the fans to experience and, and what value we can provide to fans. The, the soft launch aspect of Patreon, you know, one of the things that we found is it's really difficult to maintain uh, the cadence that we established, which was publishing an episode a week. And um, what we didn't anticipate was all of the marketing and all of the relationship building and community building that had to go hand in hand with that. So we decided to kind of build those fundamentals of the relationship building now, and then we'll continue on kind of with our cadence. Our cadence. Where it is a process of discovery, obviously we're learning something new from every guest we have. And that kind of always changes um, the direction of the story. You know, we're finding out a lot more than we did with Reckless Road. I had a very short amount of time to interview everybody for that book. Um, but, but now we can let the story breathe and we can invite a lot more people. You know, this is a story without a cutting, cutting room floor. I think that's what's the most exciting part about it. It's long form storytelling. It's something I've never done before. I've always done, you know, anything I've done has always been packaged up into a documentary film that has rigid time um, restrictions or a book that has rigid packaging restrictions where, like I said, cutting room floor. This is different. This, this allows the story to breathe and reveals, I think, greater insights than even the, the book could. All right, JD, I know you said Guns N' Roses might be your favorite band of all time, so let's start with you. Uh, what do you think of the first 50 gigs? Oh, man. I, I, the podcast itself is just bringing back so many memories. And, like, I'm, I'm kicking myself because, you know, I, I was in the middle of all this stuff, but, like, I didn't break out the camera. I didn't even keep a journal. 
Um, and, you know, and a lot of that was, you know, the people I, w- I was hanging out with at the time, like when you work in that industry, if you break out, a, a you know, back then, if you brought a camera and you, you start snapping pictures of people backstage, like they'd haul your ass out of there, you know, because you were kind of in their, their safe space, you know, like all that stuff was kind of held to a certain area of the arena or, you know, wherever they, they happen to be. And, you know, but once he got behind that, that curtain, like they didn't want to see any of that. So it's, it's amazing to me that he was able to, to document as much as he did. Um, at the same time, you know, like the idea of like the, the perfect storm that had to come together for these guys from GNR to all find each other um, and churn out this this music that they did, like that is a, a whole story all by itself, you know, which, you know, they're, they're dwelling into. I mean, Slash has always been, in my opinion, one of the, the greatest guitar players, you know, ever. And it's not necessarily like his, his, his playing style is like so effortless, like when you watch him play. Um, but like that, that instrument, it's, it's not really an instrument. It's more of an extension of him, like as he's playing. And like, it's just, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, I've seen people play, you know, extremely fast, play this, play that. But like for him, it's like, it's just him, you know, like the, the guitar is just part of him. Um, it's just phenomenal. Um, yeah, so I, I loved absolutely everything about it. I've got a, it's, I've got a demo tape somewhere from Guns N' Roses, and I need to try and dig it out because it's got Slash playing an acoustic version of November Rain on it, um, a bunch of their, their early stuff, you know, back before anybody knew who they were. And, you know, just like anything else, you know, back then, like I, I had no clue who they were going to become. So, you know, it's, it's in a box somewhere. I'm hoping I still have it. Yeah, I think it's uh, – Zach's a little younger. He might not appreciate this. But Appetite for Destruction came out in 87. I was 16 years old. And as you said, JD, that was not, there was no social media, there was no internet, and the fact that Mark Cantor was Slash's childhood friend and began taking pictures and documenting the band when they were still in middle school, and then having that drop into Jason's lap, I mean, I don't know, as a fan of rock and roll, I think of like, if one of my favorite bands, if someone followed them from way back in the day and came to me and was like, here, I've got this archive, would you write this story? I would be going nuts, like, I would, I would love that. Uh, well, the thing was too with Guns N' Roses, it was a very slow burn. You know, like I was a, a you know, eighty-seven, like I graduated in eighty-nine, so I was a a, um, a junior um, when that came out. But like they still weren't really that well known in, until you know, like I was in Fort Lauderdale, I was in college, so you know, maybe two years later, a year and a half later, or something. But like that album was out for a very long time and just developed this underground kind of following. And then they they put out you know another like an EP in between that. Um, and then they just exploded. And like the first time I saw him was at a tiny little club, you know, maybe a hundred people there. Um, and the last time I saw him was at Joe Robbie Stadium where the Dolphins play. It was um, New Year's Eve, I think 1992. Um, and, and they, you know, performed for the, the stadium. And, you know, it was just, they, they packed the place. It was insane. So like just a, in, over such a short amount of time, they just completely dominated that world. Zach, I want to uh, ask you something about the this idea of taking intellectual property uh, that already exists, or even developing it for podcasts. I mean, I know that you and I have done a lot of podcasting, and, and you're you're really sort of broadening with Creator Dad. And I'm wondering if there were sort of some takeaways or some things you heard about what Jason's doing with the podcast that you thought were interesting. Yeah, I just think it's. I mean, I think it's cool. I mean, anytime uh, you can, and I know Joanna talks about this all the time. Like anytime you can exploit an existing IP and turn it into multiple products. I mean, that is. A win, 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 win. And, you know, I mean, because it's a lot of times it's much easier to do that than it is to um, to obviously like build something else and make something new. And I, I think that, I mean, this is just such a unique project. And you know, as you guys were saying, to like have all this old footage and stuff. Because I think, um, you know, even even though I was three in nineteen eighty seven, which will make you guys feel really good. <laughs> I do love Appetite for Destruction, though. Um, but uh, but like I think people just take for granted and you guys, you talked about this in the interview, like people take for granted. Everyone has a phone now and every, everyone has video. And like a few weeks ago, we sat down with my daughter and watched some of my old home movies, like from when I was a little kid, when, because my parents had like one of the big BHSC cameras and they filmed all the time. Oh, like one of those cinder blocks. You'd sit yeah. On your shoulder. <laughs> yeah. And like, and so it was a big deal, you know, but now I don't, and, and it's cool to go back and watch. And, but now it's like my, there's so many videos of, of my daughter that like, that's, it's not going to be special to her. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just not going to be a thing. So like the fact that they were, that th- this was being done and they were filming all this stuff as it was happening. I mean, it's just, it's really pretty incredible when you think about it. Well, just 
think about it from a creator standpoint too, like the options that are available to them nowadays, you know, like the book itself is, is good, but you know, they're telling a musical story, yeah. you know, so there's only so much you can do in, in print and, you know, an audiobook you could obviously step that up a little bit, but I mean, this is, it can be a totally interactive proposition. And, you know, if you think about where all this is going, you know, more, you know, I'm, I'm thinking along the lines of like virtual reality and stuff like that. I mean, at some point he could prepackage this all over again and you throw a headset on and all of a sudden you're, you know, you're sitting right there where, where Mark was when he was filming this stuff or recording this stuff. And, you know, you're really part of that experience and, you know, th that's where it's going. I mean, that, that's what your daughter, when she gets older, is going to know as, as the norm. Yeah. JD, I know you've jokingly said before that writing nonfiction for you feels like homework. Uh, it, it, would there ever be a situation that would be similar to this that you would that would excite you to write nonfiction? You know, the thing is, especially with the, the music business, you know, everything that I did was behind the scenes. And, you know, like I would feel kind of weird talking about a lot of it, um, you know, because I saw a lot of things that, you know, like there, there's a public persona that these people put out there and then there's a personal one. And, and, you know, like I mentioned at the beginning of this, you know, there's a wall there. And when you cross that wall, you know, it, it, to me, it feels like I'm kind of betraying somebody, um, at least from my standpoint. I mean, I was working for the record label at the time. You know, I was I was the hired help. You know, I was in a cool position and everything, but that's essentially what I was. Um, for somebody like Mark, it's different. You know, like Slash obviously knew he was there, knew he was taking pictures, knew he was recording all this. Um, and, and, you know, that to me is a, an extremely important job. I mean, you know, some of the biggest bands in history don't have that. You know, like you go back and you look at somebody, even like Elvis, you know, like they took some pictures, they took some video, but not as much as they would in today's world. Um, you know, when you're going back through history, you know, studying some of these these older bands, it would be nice to have that, you know, just not only to keep the, the memory alive, but, you know, like look at that Beatles special right now that's on Apple Plus, you know, that behind the scenes look at, at them. You know, that, that's priceless material. And like, I, I wish more bands had that. So, you know, as, as you know, some, some band members may not somebody like enjoy somebody like Mark running around with a camera and a microphone doing all this at the time when it's happening. But, you know, 20, 30, 50, 100 years later, I think everybody's going to appreciate it. Yep. Yeah, I was, uh, Jason was just a really great guy. He was really interesting to talk to. Uh, very talented, obviously, and uh, was just I just was really I mean Guns N' Roses aside, I thought what he was doing was really unique and, and something we could all learn from. So, any other takeaways you guys had on the interview before we we wrap it up? I still want to see these guys all get back together and, and play a show. <laughs> you know, it's it's unfortunate. It's just when you get you know that kind of talent all together, you've got a lot of Type A personalities too, and you know a lot of a lot of heads clash and a lot of you know that that kind of thing. But you know, hopefully one day they'll they'll get over that and you know do do something together, which is uh, nice. It might be better for you just to remember 1992 and keep that in your head because I don't think it'd be <laughs> the same. <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you what I. Um, I was impressed. I saw them a few years ago uh, on on the tour, and I was really impressed with with uh, Duff and Axel and Slash. I don't know. I don't haven't heard much from Steven, and I don't think Izzy would ever do it. So unfortunately, I don't think we'll see that original lineup reunion. And and so if you're interested and you're a fan, uh, getting them, you know, seeing them now, at least three of the founding members or original members, that's probably as good as you're going to get. I can always hope. All right. <laughs> Oh, uh, so who do we got? Uh, yeah, what's on the what's on the uh, site for next week, JD? Next week we're, we've got our Q and A episode again. So if you haven't gotten your questions in on Patreon, get get out there and get some questions in. Cool. So we'll be answering those next episode. To our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers, Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.